This is the Pleasant View Sermons Podcast for the week of May 2nd, 2021. This week's sermon, The Abrahamic Covenant. It's good to be back. I... And now, Andy. here's Brother Stephen Beatty. Andy, you can say I need a drink of well, Seems like it's been a month of Sundays since I seen you last, and it's almost been a month of Sundays. But I'm glad you're here this morning, and I hope you had a good week, and and uh, good to be in God's house. Give me an amen if you're glad to be in God's house this morning. We're gonna we're gonna uh, dig more into some Bible prophecy. Uh, it's been about yeah three weeks ago we talked about the rapture, didn't we? Just a general overview of the rapture. So we're gonna dig into it week after week, Lord willing, and just get a broad overview of what God has in in store for us and what's happened in the past because, as I said before, about 30% of God's Word pertains to Bible prophecy. And if God took one-third of this Bible and said, I'm going to put in what's going to happen in the future, it's important enough to Him, it's important to us too. And I don't think enough churches are hitting the high points on Bible prophecy because it may be too complicated or it's not politically correct but I'm not going to be politically correct. We're going to, you can't be politically correct and teach God's Word. You've got to teach the whole counsel of God's Word. The message this morning, the title, is the Abrahamic Covenant. And you may be scratching your head thinking, well, what in the world has that got to do with Bible prophecy? We'll get there, okay? But for the moment, I want you to use your <clears throat> imaginations. And, and we know Brother Gary loves to read, okay? And let's just say Donna went on, her and her sister went on one of their trips and, and come back with a boatload or, or a car truckload full of goodies. And, and Gary said, what do you got for me? What do you got for me in there? And, and she gives him a suspense novel by, we've all heard of John Grisham, right? And his suspense novels. And, and he said, Gary, the, the, book, the lady at the bookstore said, this is just a, a tremendous spellbinding book and you ought to get a copy of it for your husband. She said, he loves to read, so I'll get it for him. So Gary says bye and heads off in the house back to his bedroom and and he's so eager to start reading this this novel of John Grisham's that he decides to open it in the middle of the book okay and he starts to read it and he's in the middle and he's confronted with names and locations that he has no idea what they're about you know who is Joan and and Bill and and Judge Mills he's like who are these people you know and what are they doing in the Caribbean? And why is Bill dumping a million dollars in the middle of the ocean in the Caribbean um, on his boat? And, and Gary is even more confused than what he was from the first words he read. And, and so he decides, you know what? I'm going to get to the end of the book, you know, uh, to see what happened. And so he goes towards the end of the book, the last couple of chapters. And the scene is shifted from the Caribbean to a funeral home. And he's like, wow, what's going on with a funeral home? And it's Bill's funeral, and, and Joan and Judge Mills are seated in the front row, and, and they want to know, um, Joan leans over to Judge Mills and says, if Bill hadn't dumped that million dollars over the boat, you know, why'd he do that for? And then Jones, uh, Judge Mills says he didn't know the mafia was after him, and, and Gary's really confused. He says, Caribbean, and dumping money over, and boats, and and mafia, he's like, what the heck is going on here? So out of complete frustration, he slams the book shut and he goes 
and finds Donna and slams that book down and says, honey, my dearest, thank you for the book, but I think old John Grisham has just lost his mind. You know, uh, he's completely out of touch. Well, you know, I know this analogy is kind of subtle, but it, it proves a point that when it comes to the Bible in general, people can get confused about the Bible. Uh, and when it comes to Bible prophecy, people get confused. You know, we think of at the end of the book, if you start reading Revelation, that we're going to get it all figured out, uh, the things that are still yet to come. Or, um, so you don't want to start reading in the, the end of the Bible, Revelation, and you don't want to go to the middle in Ezekiel and Daniel where they prophesy those things that are to come in that are realized in Revelation. If you want to understand the Bible and if you want to understand anything about prophecy, where do you start? In the beginning. We start in the beginning. And it tells us everything in the book of Genesis. Um, we're going to be in Genesis chapter 12 this morning. And that's what Genesis means, the beginnings of everything. And, and we find everything in the beginning. Now, when you think of the book of Genesis, the most important things that come to your mind are the creation of the world and Adam and Eve and, and the great flood, Noah and the ark, that famous story, and uh, the fall of man, and then... Uh, the Tower of Babel and man's ultimate rebellion against God. You know, you think about that, all those historical things I just named, they're all crammed in the first 11 chapters in the book of Genesis. All, all of those were crammed in those first 11 chapters. And out of a 50-chapter book of Genesis, and it's almost as if God is saying, you know, by the way, these are how these things come to be. And those first 11 chapters, the theme is man's alienation from God. Man getting further and further and further away from God. God created man, you know, and he placed him, he placed Adam and Eve in that perfect garden, and we know exactly what happened. They ended up rebelling against God. And that rebellion continued through those first 11 chapters until that climatic story in Genesis 11 of the Tower of Babel. And, you know, at that point... I'm sure you would agree, God would have been perfectly justified in condemning man for eternity, separated from him forever. He would have been justified. Does anybody disagree with that? He could have done that right then. He said, okay, I've had it. I did all I can for you, and now you've completely rebelled against me. Now I'm just going to just do away with you. It was a mistake from the beginning to do all that. However, we don't serve a God that like that, do we? We serve a merciful, and we serve a loving God, a gracious God. And instead, what did God do? He didn't scramble around in my book, my great plan for eternity. What am I going to do? No, God already has and always will. He has one will, one plan. He, ha he put in place a rescue plan for man and for the entire world. And that plan begins in Genesis chapter 12. Now, from Genesis chapter, I told you from Genesis 1 to 11, the theme is man's alienation from God. But from Genesis 12 all the way through Revelation chapter 22, you want to know what the theme is? God's reconciliation with man. From this, what we're going to talk about this morning, throughout the remainder of the Bible. Now, there were some bumps in the road, we know, of course. But it's God's reconciliation, his rescue plan for man. And it started and it centered around one man. But who that was? We're going to talk about Abraham this morning. We're going to talk about Abraham. 
from Genesis 12 all the way through the book, rest of the book of Genesis, emphasizes on Abraham and his descendants, Isaac and Jacob and the 12 tribes of Israel. And we come to Genesis 12, we're introduced to Abraham and a specific promise that was given to him. It's called the Abrahamic covenant. That's what it's called. It was a promise of redemption for mankind and for all of creation. And in order to understand this promise, you, you have to first understand the context of the promise. Just like in any book, you know, if Gary had not started in the middle of that, of that novel, he didn't get the context of the story. No wonder he would have been confused. And Gary, I'm sorry, I just, I just used you this morning, that illustration, and they give it a little, you know, pep, whatever. But anyway, we know in at the end of chapter 11 of Genesis, we're introduced to Abraham. It says Abraham and his family, where were they living? They lived in the city of Ur of the Chaldeans. Ur was then a major metropolitan city is today, like New York City or London or a big major city, Los Angeles, a big city like that. It was known for its vast knowledge of mathematics and astronomy, the, the study of the stars and, and, and space. And because of that, its rich practice in astrology came with it idolatry. It was a city full of idolatry. Now, people want to thank Abraham. He was different, though. He was different than all the, the other millions that were living in the city of Ur. Anybody think that, that he was any different than them? He really wasn't any different because the Bible says he was, he was just as much the same as the rest of the citizens. He wasn't searching for the true God like he was searching for false gods because they were into heavy idolatry. The Bible tells us he was no different than the rest. And how do we know that? Later on in Joshua chapter 24, verses 2 and 3, it says, Joshua said to all the people, Thus says the Lord, the people of Israel, From ancient times your father lived beyond the river, namely Terah, the father of Abraham and the father of Nahor, and they served other lowercase gods. Then I took your father Abraham from beyond the river and led him through all the land of Canaan and multiplied his descendants and gave him Isaac. Why in the world, the question is, why in the world did God choose Abraham? Why did he choose him? Why did he choose Abraham to be the center point, the focal point for the redemption for the entire world? It had nothing to do, listen to this, with any goodness of Abraham but it had everything to do with the goodness of God. That's it. And it's no different than you and me. He didn't choose us for our goodness. We had no goodness. You know, our, our righteousness is that of filthy rags, the Bible says. All because of one thing. God chose you and me and anyone else listening out there this morning. He chose us because of his great love and his great mercy. That's the only reason God chose us. And then God gives his commandment in verse number one of Genesis chapter 12. Look at what he says. He says, now the Lord said to Abram, go forth from your country and from your relatives and from your father's house to the land which I will show you. God was basically saying, I want you and your family, Abraham, take everything and everything you've got that you've acquired, pack up and move. That's basically what he was saying. Take everything and move to not just down across the street in Ur, Go to a distant land that I will show you. Now think of what that must have been for Abraham at that time. To leave everything he's ever known 
and go to an unknown country. It'd be pretty scary, wouldn't it? What about you? How would, how would you handle that? He said, pack up everything you got, and you've lived, you've lived in this community all your life. Get up and move. Take everything you got and go. I'm not going to tell you right now. He said, I'll tell you later. How would that be? It'd be a pretty hard pill to swallow, wouldn't it? There's a story of a family who lived in Mexico. The husband and wife, they had a child on the way. Beautiful home. Wonderful paying jobs. One evening, God told them both, I want you to take what you can and move to the United States of America. Well, that floored them. Because not only did they not, they didn't speak one word of English, they had no job prospects whatsoever inside, much less a place to live. But what did they do? They picked up what they could in two suitcases and they left for the United States. And then some time later, they finally realized why God had put them in the United States of America for God's plan for their life. Even though it didn't seem, I told Gary this morning, it didn't seem logical, it didn't seem right, it sounded really silly and much less dangerous to leave from a foreign country to go to another country. But they finally realized years later, God took care of them along the way why they were to move. And it's the same thing here with Abraham. He said, I want you, no matter even if it doesn't make the slightest bit of sense, I want you to pack up and get ready and go to a land I will show you. Someone once said about Abraham, he said, God's commands are not always followed and accompanied by reason, but God's commands are always accompanied, listen to this, by a promise, whether spoken or unspoken. Every command he gives us comes with a promise. He said, I'll never leave you. I'll never forsake you. If you'll, if you'll be obedient, God will take care of you. He'll see you through whatever that is. God, someone here this morning, you may have been, and, or somebody listening, you may have been a point in your life where God told you something very clearly he wanted you to do. I think he has every one of us at some point. And it may not have made one iota of sense. We've, any of us been there? It'll make no sense at all. But you go on and you do it anyway. Because if you don't, I think of uh, Jonah. <laughs> he found out, didn't he? If you don't do as God says, he's going to get you one way or another. Abraham didn't go and didn't take that chance. He, by faith, he went. Whether it makes any sense or not, get up and move. Remember, God gives us a command, and it may not always make sense, but there's a promise attached to it. And that was true of Abraham. And then we find the promises that follow this command in verses 2 and 3 of Genesis 12. He says, And I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you, and I and make your name great, and so you shall be a blessing. Verse 3, And I will bless those who bless you, and the ones who curse curses you I will curse. And in you all the families, not just of, of his native tribe, all the families, what does it say? Of the earth will be blessed. Now, let's look at the three components. Later on, we're going to look at the characteristics of this promise. Let's look at the three components quickly. Number one in verse one, God promised, he promised a land, okay? I don't know if I gave that to you, Daniel, or not. But anyway, God promised a land. He said, I have a piece of real estate for you, Abraham, and for your descendants. He said, it will be yours, not just for, an ex, for a generation or a couple of generations. It's going to be yours, what? forever. 
Later in Genesis 15, God gives the geographical layout of that real estate that's one day going to be Israel's. And then later in Ezekiel 37, you find a further expansion of those boundaries. And we know from history that Israel has never possessed all the land, have they? They haven't. You know what the size of Israel is today? Little, and if you look at the map, all these big, vast countries around, surround like big monsters around this little bitty, tiny piece of real estate called Israel. It's about the size of New Jersey in the United States, the state of New Jersey. It's not very big at all. And the bad thing is most of these countries hate Israel around them. But it's a little bitty pat, little bitty thing. But guess what? One of these days, the Bible says there's going to be a whole lot more that God is going to give them because he promised it. And when God makes a promise, you better bet he's going to, he's going to fulfill it sooner rather than later. Now, under King Solomon in the 10th century B.C., under his leadership, his kingship, they had majority of that land that was promised, but they still didn't have all of it. They still, at that point, they still didn't have all of that land. One day, God told Abraham, you and your believing descendants will inherit the entire full geographical area of that land. And you know what that, I think that'll be? There's a thousand-year reign of Christ when Jesus is going to fulfill all the remaining prophecies to believing Israel. They're going to get all of that land that God promised. God may make a promise. It may not be tomorrow. It may not be next week or next month. It may not be in our lifetime. But God's going to fulfill his promises one way or another. Now, when you right now, when you hear stories in the Middle East, you usually don't hear very many good stories, do you? It's always conflict and turmoil, um, uh, unibombers in the Middle East, and and threats against Israel and Iran getting a nuclear weapon, and going to they're going to annihilate not only the United States, but they're going to annihilate Israel as well. They don't think they deserve to be there. When you boil it right down to its essence, and you peel away at that proverbial onion, guess what it's all about? That little piece of ground that Israel has. The Palestinians think it's theirs. Israel says it's theirs. I'm going to go off what God says in God's words. It's Israel's, okay? And one day, they're going to have every last piece of it, whether Iran or the Palestinians or whoever likes it or not. It's going to be Israel's because God said it, and he said it right here in Genesis chapter 12. I think he meant every word he said, amen? He did. One day, he's going to fulfill that promise. Now, the second component is God promised a seed. In verse 2, he promised a seed. He said, I'll make you a great nation, and I will bless you. He said Abraham was going to be the father of a tremendous nation. And in fact, in Genesis chapter 22, God expanded on how great that nation would be. Look at Genesis 22 and verse 17 on the screen. He said, indeed, I will greatly bless you, and I will greatly multiply your seed as the stars of the heavens and as the sand which is on the seashore. And your seed shall possess the gate of their enemies. He said, Abraham, your descendants are going to be so numerous, just like all the stars in the heavens and all the sands on the seashore. And anybody want to go to a beach and start counting every grain of sand, please go on ahead and do that. You'll never get done. But that's how numerous of the descendants of the blessings that God has promised to Abraham and his descendants. He said, I'm going to make you a great nation. Now, listen to this. This is what's funny in a way. This promise of Abraham, a blessing and a seed and making the father of a great nation came when Abraham wasn't in his 20s or his 30s or 40s. Abraham was 75 years of age. 
Gary, how would you like to be that put on your shoulders? Even at 71 right now, and you know, you may have 15, 20, 10 years, who knows, whatever God has ordained for you. Abraham was 75 years old. The writer of Hebrews said in, in, in 11, uh, chap, uh, chapter 11, verse 12, he described Abraham at that time, listen to this quote, as good as dead. <laughs> Abraham, you're, he said, Abraham, when this promise was given, he was as good as dead. Sarah, his wife, probably looked at him and said, honey, you're looking as good as dead. Have any of you wives ever looked at your partner and said, he looks as good as dead? Anybody ever done that? Sometimes I feel like I'm as good as dead sometimes, but wore down. we've all felt that way at times. But Sarah popped the thought, Abraham, you're as good as dead, and now here God's given you this promise. You're going to be a father of a great nation. On top of that, Sarah at the time, folks, was barren, wasn't she? No children, no prospects of a child whatsoever and not even in their wildest dreams did they think of having any children because she was barren. But God said, no, I'm going to make you, Abraham, and you, Sarah, a father and a mother of a great, great nation. God said, not only am I going to give you a land, a seed, I'm going to give you third. I'm going to promise you a blessing. In verse 3, all the families of the earth, not just the Israelites, the families of the earth will be blessed. And this is the climax of the promise. A worldwide blessing to Abraham and all the descendants they would have. What is God talking about? You know, some people think that Abraham was thinking of some just general blessing, you know. Now, we know that the three major world religions, uh, Islam and Judaism and Christianity, did you know they all three have one thing in common, One very few things in common? One of them is even Islam. They believe that Abraham is their spiritual forefather. Even Satan will take kernels of truth that really is truth and put it in forth to these Islam. They're being so greatly deceived by the lies of Satan. But a kernel of truth has to be put in there to make it work. Abraham is their spiritual forefather, and that is true. He is our spiritual forefather, the Jews and, and Christians alike. Hey, Father Abraham, remember that song, Father Abraham and many sons? You know, he is our spiritual forefather. People say, in that sense, that all the world is through Abraham is going to receive a blessing. I don't believe God meant that in this verse, and I'm going to explain why. God had something very specific in mind in this verse. He said, Abraham, through you, listen to this, one is going to come that is going to redeem mankind and reverse that curse that has been placed on the earth. Through you, Abraham, the Savior of the world is going to come. It says it in verse 3. Did you read it? It's not really there in print. I'm thinking, how in the world do you get a Savior out of verse 3? Well, the simple phrase, through you, Abraham, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. And I'll tell you what, all the nations of the world are blessed because of Jesus and Jesus alone. What he came to do, to die to give us a chance Every man, woman, and child, a chance at eternity. Forgiveness of sins, eternity of salvation. And also because of the New Testament, how it interprets these verses in the Old Testament. You know, some people, we'll get to that verses in just a minute. Some people believe Abraham knew that there was a general blessing, but he really didn't understand the whole picture of what God had in store. Does anybody believe Abraham really didn't understand that there was going to be a Savior to come and all that? Anybody believe it? You don't have to answer because I'm going to tell you right now. He did know. Abraham knew fully well because Paul explains it to the church of Galatia. 
The Bible tells us Abraham had a very clear understanding of what this blessing would be. Galatians chapter 3, verses 6 through 8. And we'll get to those verses, but I'm going to give you the context real quick of, of why Paul was writing this letter to the church of Galatia. The church of Galatia had been infected by false teachers. Some things never change, do they? We had false teachers then, and we've got false teachers today. These people were called the Judaizers. Here's what they would say. They would say, faith in Christ is important for salvation, but it's not sufficient for salvation. You've got to believe in Jesus and be circumcised and, and, and be baptized and do this and this and this and on and on. It's faith and works, they said. That's false teaching, folks. Today, we still have the same thing going on in different portions of Christendom. They say faith in Christ is important, but you got to be baptized. You got to join the church and you got to partake of all the sacraments. On and on and on it goes. Faith and works, just like the Judaizers had taught. The Apostle Paul says, no, absolutely N-O, no, that's not true. In Galatians 1.8, Paul made it very clear. He said that if anybody, anybody preaches a gospel other than in faith in Christ and Christ alone, he said, let that person be accursed. He was being nice. But in, in the Greek, let that person be anathema. Literally, let him be damned. That's what he was saying. Anybody who preaches other the, any gospel or any false teaching other than the gospel, Paul said, let him be damned. That's exactly what's going to happen to him. That's exactly what's going to happen. The Bible says it's in faith in Christ alone that saves. Amen? And to prove that, the Galatians, he tells the story of Abraham. Look at Galatians 3, 6. Even so, Abraham believed God. It's all, all caps because he's referring, to, uh, he's referring back to the Old Testament. Abraham believed God, and it was reckoned or credited to him as righteousness. Now, remember, Paul was talking to Jews here. He's saying, you want to know how a person is saved? Let's go back to our father Abraham, and that's how he's saved. Let's see how he was saved. Was he saved by works, or was he saved by circumcision. No, Abraham believed God and it was reckoned to him. That's an accounting term. It was credited to him as righteousness. And Colossians 3, 7, he goes on. He says, therefore, because of that, be sure it is those who are of faith who are sons of Abraham. Now, to be a recipient of this Abrahamic covenant and blessing, you don't just have to be a physical descendant of Abraham. Are we a physical descendant of Abraham? No, we're not Jews, okay? Being a Jew by nationality doesn't get you anywhere whatsoever. You're just a Jew, you know, by, by your, your, your heritage, that's all. It doesn't get you anywhere. The true sons of Abraham are those who are related to him by faith, by faith. This promise is made to God to all believing Israel. Now look at verse 8 of Galatians 3. The scripture foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the, listen to this, preached, God preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, all the nations will be blessed in you. Did you, did you hear that carefully, that last part of that verse? The, what message was being preached to Abraham during Abraham's life? The gospel. Like, huh? Yeah, that's the power of the God we serve. The gospel was already done, even back then. He preached it to Abraham. 
It wasn't a teaching of a general blessing. It was the gospel of Jesus Christ that was preached to Abraham. Abraham wasn't saved by his works. He was saved by God's grace received through faith. Abraham believed God, and it was reckoned to him, credited to him as righteousness. Now, the next, I know this is kind of lengthy because this is so important to understand Bible prophecy. So just please just bear with me. The next few minutes, get your, your, your long boots on, and we're going to tread through some theological waters here. We'll get to the other side, I promise you. But you got this is so important to understand this this morning. And you may already know this. I'm sure we all do, but it's a good reminder of what God's trying to tell us here. The question, have you ever been asked, how were people in the Old Testament saved? Pre-Christ, right? How were people in the Old Testament saved? You know what you tell them? They were saved the same way you and I were saved. Remember these three statements. Remember them very well this morning. Number one, it doesn't matter whether in the Old Testament or the New Testament. The basis of salvation is God's grace, His unmerited favor of love to us. God's grace and grace alone. Doesn't matter when you lived. We're all saved, not by our works. We're not saved by works whatsoever. We're saved by God's grace. Number two, the means of salvation is what? Christ's death, okay? That's how we receive salvation. Somebody had to die for the sins of the world, and it was Jesus Christ who did. That's God's grace, his willingness to give what we don't really deserve at all. We don't deserve nothing but eternal hell and separation from God. But it had an expression in time and history. It occurred at Calvary on the cross of Jesus Christ. What does Romans 5, 8 says? But God demonstrates his own love towards us in that while we were yet sinners, what happened? Christ died for us. We didn't love him. and Okay, you love me so much, I'm going to go die for you. He didn't do that. We didn't want no part of Christ. Much less the people who lived during Jesus' time, they didn't want anything to do with Christ. A lot of them didn't. But out of his great love, what did he do? He died for us, didn't he? He sure did. Because of God's grace, he sent his son Jesus by for the means of our salvation and open up that opportunity for everyone to be saved. The basis of salvation is God's grace. The means of salvation is Christ's death. And third, this is important, the channel of salvation is our faith, okay? Our faith. The way God's grace through the death of Jesus Christ applies or is applied is through our own faith. This, it's this, we're not saved by faith, we're saved by God's grace, aren't we? And he demonstrates that through Christ's death, but we receive salvation through faith. When it, Paul in Ephesians 2, 8, he said, for what? By God's grace, you are saved through faith. God's grace, not by anything we've done at all. And that was exactly true of Abraham. The Bible says in Galatians 3, 8, Abraham believed and his belief, his faith was credited to him as righteousness. The promise to Abraham was a seed and a blessing. Quickly, I want to look at the three characteristics this morning of this promise that are key to understanding Bible prophecy. I promise we're going to get to the end, folks. Three characteristics of this Abrahamic covenant. First, this is so important, this promise was a literal promise. It was literal, okay? Certainly, there were some spiritual components and discussed in, in a few moments, we discussed a few moments ago, but God was actually promising Abraham 
He was promised him an actual land, not some fairy tale, imaginary land, you know, like the Wizard of Oz. He was promising something literal here. This new land, Canaan, just wasn't a metaphor. Some people think for heaven in the future, it's an actual land that would be belong to Abraham. And how do we know that? Look at Abraham's response in verses 4 and 5 of Galatians 12. So Abram went forth as the Lord had spoken to him, and Lot went with him. Now Abram was 75 years old when he departed from Haran. Abram took Sarai his wife and Lot his nephew, and all their possessions which they had accumulated, and the persons which they had acquired in Haran, and they set out for the land of Canaan. Thus they came to the land of Canaan. Abraham understood this was a literal promise. If this was some metaphor for heaven, why did Abraham go through all that trouble to take his wife, his nephew, and every possession he had to move to the land of Canaan, right? Okay. It was a big deal to move in that day. You know, it's kind of ironic, to, you know, talking about Abraham moving. You know what? He didn't call that moving company. Hey, you know what? Come bring your, your track, your 18-wheeler and load up all my possessions and bring a stock trailer and load up all of my uh, uh, animals, you know, because we're going to go to the land of Canaan and I'll tell you more about it later and hang up the phone. He didn't have that luxury, did he? Not like we're going to have here in about a month to have a moving company help move our things, you know. Abraham didn't have that whatsoever. He had to load everything up on his own at 75 years of age. Yeah, I don't think he really wanted to move there in the beginning. You know, my gosh, God, don't you know I got an ailing back and bad knees and uh, arthritis setting in and everything else. You know, I can't do that. But no, he didn't do that. He went on and he moved. He had to pack up everything he had. What about you? You know, I know everybody have junk laying around their house. Yep. How'd you like to pack all that up? And then what if God said, you got one day to pack it all up and, and get to moving. And if you don't, I'm going to kick you in a hiding and you're going to get to moving. Uh, I'm telling you what, just think, 75 years worth of stuff for Abraham, even his childhood toys and stuff he had, little, little rocks or whatever they had to play with back then, and all that stuff. They had to move it. It was a major deal. Abraham went through all that work because he was headed to a literal land, a literal physical land. He yes, we know he was looking for heaven too, and we're all looking for heaven, right? We've been talking about heaven a lot, and that's a glorious place we're going to be one day. We're all looking for heaven. Hebrews 11.10, we talked about it in the public reading, says Abraham was looking for that city whose foundations was built by God, right? Okay. Abraham was looking for an earthly home. Number two, the promise wasn't temporary. It was eternal. It was an eternal promise. God reaffirmed in Genesis 13 that this land was going to be yours, he said, forever and forever and ever, never ending. Look at Genesis 13, verses 14 and 15. He said, The Lord said to Abram, after Lot had separated from him, now lift up your eyes and look up from the place where you are, northward and southward, eastward and westward, for all the land which you see, I will give it to you and your to your descendants. How long? Forever. Forever is a long time, isn't it? Uh, Gary mentioned again this morning, we, can't, we just can't put our little finite minds on eternity. How long? Eternity. How long? Forever. And eternity is. Listen to what someone uh, described eternity as. They said, high up in the north, in the land called Smithshod, there stands a rock. 
This rock is 100 miles wide and 100 miles high. Once every 1,000 years, a little bird comes to this rock to sharpen its beak. And when the rocks have finally been worn away, then only a single day of eternity will have gone by. That's a great way to look at it, isn't it? Only when we've been there 10,000 years, like the song says, eternity will have just begun. That's how long eternity is. God said this land is going to be you, yours, yours, Abraham's, and your descendants forever. This promise was literal. It was eternal. Finally, and so important, this promise was unconditional. That is so important. It's a, not a conditional promise. It's unconditional. You know, the many Christians, they'll concede, yeah, God made a promise to Abraham, and he intended for that promise to be fulfilled. But Israel, as we know, rebelled time and time again against God. And because of that, they'll say, they've rejected Christ. And since they have done that, the Abrahamic covenant has been changed, they'll say. They'll say that promise has moved from Israel now to the church. That's what many people say. They will say the promise has changed from a literal, literal promise to a symbolic promise. In other words, the promise of a land for Israel has changed to a promise of heaven for the church. I don't know where the people get this silly stuff from. It, they're trying to change what God has said was going to be forever and was going to be a literal place. Nobody has the right whatsoever to mess with God's word. And those what we call false teachers. That's what's going on here. I can't remember the, uh, the, the theological term for this right off the moment. I will later on and then I'll scream it out and It'll be too late because you all already be home. But there's a name for this. Uh, uh, but anyway, they think that now Israel has been rejected by God forever and the church has taken Israel's place. Nothing could be further from the truth. They'll go on to say that, yes, uh, descendants of Abraham and of David, they'll sit on, that David and Abraham will sit on the throne in Jerusalem and rule over the world, but that's been changed and transferred to the church. They'll say Christ is going to rule from the throne of your own heart and live forever and ever. What are we to say about all that? You know, yeah, we read in scripture, scripture over and over, there are conditional promises that are made to Israel. Over and over again, God promised blessings and he also promised curses, didn't he? He promises the same for us as well. It, he said, if they'll follow the law, I'll bless you. If you don't follow the law and you disobey me, I'm going to curse you. Remember, in fact, as Moses prepared the Israelites to enter the promised land of Canaan, we find these words in Deuteronomy 11, verses 26 and 28. He said, See, I am setting before you today a blessing and a curse. The blessing, if you listen to the commandments of the Lord your God, which I am commanding you today. And the curse, if you do not listen to the commandments of the Lord your God, but turn aside from the way which I am commanding you today by following other gods which you have not known in all of israel's history there's been blessings and curses and blessings and curses they were blessed when they followed god but if they didn't they were judged by god calamity and exile we know this we know the history of israel now here's one thing to remember these blessings and these curses came through moses but listen to this the promise of abraham came 430 years before the law 430 years from Abraham to Moses. 
God is saying these conditional promises I gave to Moses in no way, shape, or form negate the promise that I have, I have given to Israel and to Abraham. To give you an illustration, let's say a couple, they, they had their first child and they, God has blessed them with you know, a pretty good estate and they've got, they got some money, good jobs, and they've acquired some stuff, inherited some stuff from um, descendants and they want to make a will, okay? You know, you make a will, it's a smart thing to do to leave stuff to your children and grandchildren. Now, let's take this couple, they start having all kinds of children and their will's set in place and they're fine and all. But what happens in every, in every parent's, you know, when, they, when they have children in their childhood, they start experiencing rebellion, don't they? <laughs> Your children rebel some, okay? And they, they, if they obey you, they're blessed. If they don't obey you, they experience curses, don't they? Calamity, you know, grounding, swatting on the tail end, whatever it might be. But no matter what that child or children have done, and most parents, I hope not, they will not throw them out of their will, will they? It's an unconditional promise that they give those children. You're gonna, what I have is going to be yours one day. No matter what you do, I love you unconditionally. That's exactly <clears throat> the same thing God is saying. Paul makes that argument for this covenant. Look at Galatians 3, verses 17 and 18. He says, for I am saying is this, <clears throat> the law which came 430 years later does not invalidate a covenant previously ratified by God so as to nullify the promise. For it is the inheritance, if the inheritance is based on law, it is no longer based on a promise. But God is granting it to Abraham by means of a promise. This was an irrevocable promise made to Abraham 430 years before the law. The law came later. It was a temporary series of blessings and curses. And however, in no way did it cancel out that promise. And by the way, that's what it, the psalmist was saying in Psalm 89. Look at what he says. He says, if his sons forsake my law and do not walk in my judgments, if they violate my statutes and do not keep my commandments, then I will punish their transgression with the rod and the iniquity with stripes. But I will not break off my loving kindness from him nor deal falsely in my faithfulness. My covenant I will not violate, nor will I alter the utterance of my lips. Once I have sworn by my holiness, I will not lie to David. His descendants shall endure forever, and his throne as the sun before me. It shall be established forever like the moon, and the witness in the sky is faithful. Perhaps the greatest evidence of this unconditional nature of this covenant is the way it was ratified by Abraham. This is so unique if you read, you read on in Abraham in uh, Genesis. Before Abraham ever got any farther with God, he wanted to know if God was going to keep his end of the bargain. And he wanted to know, show me that this is really going to happen. I want that assurance. And in verse 8 of Genesis 15, Abraham asked, Oh Lord, how may I know that I'm going to possess this land? In Abram's day, you have to remember when two countries represented by two kings came together to make it a, a peace treaty, to ratify an agreement. What they would do, they would, they would take animal pieces and they would cut them in half and they would line those animal pieces side by side, have a path on each side in the middle and lay them out 
all these animal pieces. And then the kings would take torches, each one, side by side, walking along these animal pieces as a symbol of their, their end of the bargain. They were going to keep that ratification of that covenant they made with those, the other king. And doing that signified the covenant was dependent on each party to keep their end of the bargain. That's what it was all about. So Abraham, he knew of that, uh, of how they did that back then in his day, how two kings would come together to ratify a, a, a covenant brought together. Now look at Genesis 15, verses 9 and 10. Listen to this. God said to him, Bring me a three-year-old heifer and a three-year-old female goat and a three-year-old ram and a turtle dove and a very young pigeon. He said, then he brought all of these to him and cut them in two and laid each half opposite the other, but he did not cut the birds. Abraham must have had one heck of a stomach. You cut up these animal pieces like that, oof. I'm, I thank God, is there another way to do this? You know, no, there wasn't. This is this God, isn't it amazing how God will use customs that man has come up with some, many times to get his point across and to do things God's way. He'll use some things sometimes man's way of doing things, you know, you know, to keep along with what the culture was doing. That's what they did here. And God told him, this is what I want you to do. And Abraham did it. Now, normally Abraham, like I said, he knew what was going on. Just I can see in his mind, you know, gosh, this is, man, I must, I'm really something. God chose me and, and now we're going to ratify this, this covenant together. And he's got me to get all these animal pieces and I'm going to cut them up and, and I'm going to lay them down as God said, just so pretty and perfect. And God's going to get a torch, and I'm going to get a torch, and we're going to, like the Olympics, take off running down the field, and we're going to walk side by side with each other, me and my creator God. Mm, man, what a, I'm just so special. Abraham had another thing coming, because what happened next, God did something very, very different. Notice what happens in Genesis 15, 12. Now, when the sun was going down, Abraham's thinking, God, it's getting late. We got to get this, get this ratification going. I've got my torch. You get your torch and we'll sing Kumbaya and go down this line of animals. Now, watch what God did. A deep sleep fell upon Abram, and behold, terror and great darkness fell upon him. What happened to Abraham? God put him to sleep, didn't he? It was time for a siesta. And look at what happens in verses 17 and 18. It came about when the sun had set that it was very dark, and behold, there appeared a smoking oven and a flaming torch which passed between these pieces. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying, To your descendants I have given this land, from the river of Egypt as far as the great river, the river Euphrates. Abraham was disappointed when he woke up because what he thought was going to happen is a joint session of, of a promise was only one, wasn't it? Abraham was in a corner, sound asleep. God had every intention of putting him for a nap, a nighty-night time for him. It was God and God alone who made this promise. It had nothing to do with Abraham's faithfulness whatsoever. It had everything to do with God and his faithfulness. This was and always will be an unconditional promise because man many times will go back on their word, won't they? God won't go back on his word. That's why Abraham was put asleep. He can't make that promise. Only God can make that promise. 
and to make sure it was forgotten, and it wasn't forgotten or missed, the writer of Hebrews said in Hebrews 6.13, he says, For when God made the promise to Abraham, since he could swear by no one greater, he swore it by himself. What does all this have to do with Bible prophecy? We're getting there, folks. Hang on. We're getting there. God promised to Israel a certain land. And since 1948, they've been a nation, right? And they've been in the land. However, they have not occupied all of that land. And like I said earlier, all that turmoil in the Middle East, why they hate Israel so much is because they think they've got what's theirs. They don't think Israel belongs there. It's because of that little piece of New Jersey-sized real estate. God has kept the nation of Israel. Even when they've been down, they disobeyed God. He's always restored them because of the promise he made here. It's going to be fulfilled. And anybody out there who doesn't like it, tough, because God said it's going to happen, okay? God isn't finished with Israel, and not all the elect in Israel has been saved yet, okay? Right now, more than ever, people are flooding back to their homeland of Israel. I wonder why. Could it be things are going to come to pass sooner than we think? There's a reason why, folks. It's true that God has sent a blessing to all the world through Jesus Christ, and that he rules the hearts of individual believers, but he's not yet sitting on the throne of David yet in Jerusalem, as God promised he would do. That's going to happen after his second coming. What I'm saying to you this morning is God still has an unfinished business here on planet Earth. God is going to keep his promise to Abraham and his descendants. His unconditional promise. You think, well, what the heck do I care? I'm not a Jew. If anybody ever asks you that, you know what? It's in God's Word for us to read. It's important to God. It sure better be important to us. And we're going to see later that the Abrahamic covenant, although it was to Abraham and his believing descendants, it has ramifications for you and me as well. Even more importantly, the reason it is important for God to keep His promise to Israel, it's one way of knowing that God's going to keep His promises to you and to me and to you out there. If, it was, if God goes back on his promises to Abraham, what makes you think he won't do the same to us? It's very important. Just as God made that unconditional promise to the believing Jews, he's made some unconditional promises to us. I'm going to give you three verses this morning. Quickly, John 10, 28. I give eternal life to them, and no man shall snatch them out of my hands, he said. That's an unconditional promise. Either Jesus meant it or he didn't mean it. Mean it. He meant it, folks. Hebrews 7.25, Inasmuch Christ is able to save forever those who came to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. And in Hebrews 13.5, Jesus promised, I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. The same God who can be trusted to keep the promises to Israel is the same God we are dependent upon every single day of our lives to keep those eternal promises to us. That's why this is so important. If God goes back on his promises to Israel, I want to remind you again, if he goes back on those promises to Israel, he may very well do the same for you and me. And I'm telling you what, I'm not banking on that. Whenever we take our last breath, the Bible says to be absent from the body is to be at home or in the presence of Jesus Christ. I would hate to think I got to heaven and God said, you know what, uh, you know what, Charlene, you know what, Donna, whoever, John, whoever it might be, 
you know what, I promised you those things while you was here, and then I got to thinking about it. You know what, eh, I'm going to base it off your works, and guess what, you don't have enough good works, so I'm going to condemn you out of my presence forever. Man, oh my gosh, all hope would be gone at that moment. But guess what, it's not gone, because God doesn't go back on his promises. When he says something, he means it from beginning to end. Genesis to Revelation, whatever he says is going to happen, is going to happen, and in our individual lives as well. I give you eternal life, he said, and no man, nobody, not even Satan, will snatch you out of my hands, he said. It is God's character not to do something like that. Romans eleven twenty nine. 29, this is very important. For the gifts and the callings of God are irrevocable. It's a binding trust. It cannot be broken by anything whatsoever. Just as we can depend on the character of God to secure those unconditional promises made to us, we can depend that God's going to do the same to Abraham and his believing descendants. It's a promise that has great ramifications for you and me. And as we go on the weeks ahead, we're going to find out those promises mean so much to you and me as we go on a little bit further into Bible prophecy. Let's bow together in prayer this morning. Speaking to the audience out there will be listening to this message at a later time. You know, this has been a little bit different. This has been a refreshing course of how everything come to start with a promise. God gave Abraham and his believing descendants an unconditional promises of things that are yet to come that haven't happened yet. And yet here we are, almost 6,000 years later, here we are now at the point in your life, maybe you want to be part of that great promise. You're probably not a Jew, but that doesn't matter. Jews and Gentiles, Jesus come to save us all, to give us all eternal life, not just a few He's died for the sins of the entire world. And you may have that opportunity this morning. Maybe the Holy Spirit's really working on you and you know there's no hope in anything else in, God, in government or a movement or, you know, nothing else can save you but in faith in Christ and Christ alone this morning because that's what the Bible teaches. Jesus Christ and Christ alone is the only way to the Father, the Bible says. If you're feeling that in your heart, the Holy Spirit's working on you this morning and you want to know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior and trust in Him for the forgiveness of your sins, no matter where you are. If you're driving, though, pull off the side of the road. If you're at work, at your home, outside mowing grass, whatever you're doing, listen to this message. You can do say this simple prayer of faith right now that you can be saved by the blood of Jesus. Dear God, thank you for loving me. And I know that I have failed you in so many ways. And I'm truly sorry for the sins in my life. But I do believe what I have heard this morning, that you love me so much you sent your son Jesus to die on the cross for my sins, not by any of my good works. My works are worthless before salvation, but by what Jesus and Jesus alone did to save me from my sins. Thank you for loving me and thank you for forgiving me. And I'm praying this morning you'll help me spend the rest of my life serving you. And I pray this in Jesus' name. If you prayed that prayer this morning and you really meant it with all of your heart, you are a child of God. Prior to that, 
you're not, you were separated from God. That wall of sin kept building and building, and you were more and more separated from God. You are now a child of God. You're going to want to give a testimony to anybody and everybody you know and see. It's going to be on your heart to tell what Jesus did for you. He forgave you of all the sins, past, present, and future. You're going to want to give that testimony. You're going to want to get in a Bible-believing church, just like this one here at Pleasant View Missionary Baptist. If you're a follower of Christ, we welcome you here this morning. You can look at our information on pvbaptistchurch.org. Our great technician, Daniel, has done phenomenal work to make it so easy to get on there, to look at our sermons, to look at our information, our contact information, and the doors are open to you. Or if you're not near us, a Bible-believing church that teaches the whole counsel of God's Word, you're going to want to get into a Bible-believing church. If you are now a follower of Christ, we welcome you here. Or go someplace else where the Bible is taught. Not milk toast and, and just taught to what the people want to hear to make them feel good, a feel-good moment. They're going to teach about sin, salvation, and how to grow as a Christian. You can't do it by yourself. You're going to need other mature Christians to help you grow just like a baby. You need that meat of God's Word to grow in your faith. You're going to want to do that this morning, and we welcome you here as well. Father in heaven, we pray that no one this morning who has had that call of salvation put on to them by the Holy Spirit will resist that call. We pray they won't resist it, that they'll move forward and accept Christ as Savior, and we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. This has been the Pleasant View Sermons Podcast. For more information about our church, including service times and videos of our latest sermons, visit our website at www.pvbaptistchurch.org.